You are listening to the Women Offshore Podcast. I'm Christine McMillan, filling in for Ali Cedeno while she is on maternity leave. I'm an experienced manager and the program coordinator here at Women Offshore. Women Offshore is a 501c3 nonprofit organization supporting a diverse workforce on the water. New episodes of the Women Offshore podcasts are available every Tuesday. Subscribe on whatever platform you like to listen to podcasts on and be in the know about the latest topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion within the maritime and offshore industries. Be inspired by the stories shared here. Thank you to the OGGN for their continuous support as our podcast producer. They have the best energy shows on their network. On today's podcast, I had the opportunity to get nerdy with spirit about offshore wind, coral, cathodic protection systems, and the standardization of corrosion protective systems. Being a pioneer in offshore wind, Orsted, the company she works for, is leading the way in sustainability and renewable energy. Birit reminds me that every job is exciting and energizing because of the people. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you, Christine. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. My name is Birit Boer. I work with Offshore Wind and I work with Ørsted, who is a developer in Offshore Wind. And if I should introduce myself, it's well, I'm Danish. My background is Danish and offshore wind all started in the northern European part. And the first offshore wind farm was actually in Denmark in 1992. So Denmark feels very proud because of that. And that's also the reason why Ørsted is have become and grown so big because that's where a lot of it started. But now it's a global industry all over the world. So my name is Birgit Boer. My educational background is chemical engineering. I studied cement, some concrete and corrosion protection. I did some studies, part of my studies in Turkey, in a cement factory outside of Istanbul. And Turkey is a wonderful country, wonderful culture and the food. I love it. And then I, after my studies, I applied for a job at a consultancy company which is called Kovi. It's a very big and also a global company. I have been working there for many, many years. In Kovi, I was working in a bridge department. So it was uh, both on getting durable bridge structures. They have a very long service life. In many cases, it's more than 100 years, which is specified. We could ask ourselves if we are driving cars when it comes after 100 years, but still they are specified for such a long time. And also working with an area of corrosion protection, it's all kind of structures that you can provide consultancy on. So it's both bridges, it's sheet piles and harbors, it's ships, it's pipelines, oil and gas, everything basically. And at some point in time, I decided to also pursue some more knowledge on cathodic protection, which is a corrosion protection measure. And I took some studies with AMPP and achieved a certification for a specialist within cathodic protection. That's more than 10 years ago now, and it's, I'm very happy I made that because it's a good education. And at some stage, I got offered a job with Ørsted. It's close to nine years ago now in their offshore wind department or design department and looking into corrosion protection. Back then in 2013, when I started, it was only a small part of the Ørsted company 
And I said a little earlier, there was a lot of management decisions saying we should go all for renewable. So the management has simply matured renewable and just spreading it to also biofuels, onshore, offshore, solar, power to X, you name it. And then getting rid of sounds a bit harsh, but then having somebody else to do the oil and gas part and also being sure that we phase out all the coal-fired plants. So it was really a major transformation that the company made to be 100% renewable energy. Is that correct? That is correct. It's a huge transformation and it's quite impressive, the vision that the top management have had and still have. So you can say the transformation has been all renewable energy and let's create a world that runs on all green energy. And now Russell is taking it even further, saying we also want to make sure that we have a biodiversity effect. So the projects we do going forward should also have a positive biodiversity effect. You can say one of the things that we have worked with, which I'm also been participating in, and I'll explain to you why, because this has to do, the project is called Recoral, and it's a project where we focus on trying to see if we can get corals to live on our foundation structures. Oh, wow. And we have just made a first proof of concept study in a project we have in Taiwan. The intention, you can say the corals are under a lot of pressure across the world because of the increase in temperature. But what happens when we go offshore is that it's a more stable temperature regime. So we hope it would serve a better possibility for them to survive. Yeah, that's wonderful. During spawning, well, and the reason why it could be relevant for corals to stay on the structure is that, and this is my part of this <laughs> this project, is that when you have cathodic protection, you would have an anode and the structure is a cathode. During that process, you form carbonates and the carbonates will sit on the structures. The corals and the skeletons that they have are made of carbonates. Oh. So the process that we do to protect our structures against corrosion is actually also what makes them being maybe a more favorable place for corals to settle and live. Okay. So we did this, it's about a month or two ago. We had a local company or research institute to collect coral larvae. You know, they spawn in three or four times a year. Mm -hmm. And then some of them are actually washed towards the shore. Mm -hmm. If we wouldn't pick them up, they would die there. So having them in making them mature so they're ready to settle and then going and put them in behind sort of an encasement so that they could settle on the structure. Oh, very cool. That is the ambition. So we'll see in a couple of months' time if they made it there. <laughs> we don't know because you then move the mesh after again. And there's a lot of flow in the water, so yeah. it's a tough environment. And then what's the depth of the water there that they're trying to survive in? The depth is maybe 30, 35 meters, but we are not placing them. They have to be where there's still some sunlight. Right. So we have placed maybe three, four meters below normal waters, lower tidal waters. And then you can say if they then grow and mature, maybe they could develop even further than that. But, but we'll see. The research behind coral growth is just booming right now, I think. And we just found 
a lot of deep water corals growing off the coast of North America and in the Gulf of Mexico, there's a wonderful coral garden as well that, that we didn't know existed for a long time. So it's just fascinating. I'm so excited that you're doing that research yes. and a part of it. And so, and I just think that cathodic protection and the sea is a really harsh environment and every ship has a cathodic protection system. And then now we're building a lot more of these offshore structures that are having to survive. So explain more about your job and just, I mean, how are you keeping these structures safe and like that they can be working for as long as possible? Yes, you can say, I mean, with cathodic protection, there are in principle two ways of protecting a structure with currents, electrical currents. One of them is galvanic currents, galvanic anodes. And that's why you use a metal which is which will sacrifice itself to protect the structure. So it's less noble. And what is mostly frequently used in the industry is aluminum anodes. So when connected to the steel structure, they will provide some electron ions and electrons to protect the structure. In current system, there you have a metal that donates the power and you need a power supply. And there's a lot of debates going on across in the industry, which one is the better, also looking at environmental impacts. With the galvanic anodes, you get metals emitted in the waters. So, of course, what we have a lot of focus on is the composition of the alloying material to limit the amount of zinc, which is not a good thing. <laughs> Aluminum, we have that across the globe, so that's probably limited. And some indication has shown that that's not too bad. And then we don't want any lead, we don't want any cadmium in our alloying. So, and then you can say we, for impressed current systems, they emit less metal, but you use a lot of materials. You use copper cables, polymers for insulation, you use uh, noble metals. So there are also other considerations. So it's important to distinguish what is influencing the sea environment close to the offshore wind farm and what is influencing sustainability across the globe as a whole. And it's two different things. You can say for impressed current systems, you also have other things. You have hydrogen being developed. You have chlorine gases forming, and they're also toxic. So it's really a balance what is best. The galvanic anodes are maybe the more robust solution, and it works from day one, whereas the other would provide, uh, you need power to energize the system. And that's not really available before we have the power up and running from the system. So that might take maybe a year before we have that. So you need to have some temporary protection also in that period of time. So, and regardless which system you use, you would always combine it with some sort of a coding system. You can reduce the amount of anodes, the galvanic anodes, significantly if you use coding systems on your structure. Impressed current system, here another benefit is you can just increase your power and get it to protect more so you don't need to code so much. Mm -hmm. But you need to protect it in the temporary phase before power is up and running for, for that zone. You can say I'm participating in standardization works and we have actually just published an ISO standard for cathodic protection of offshore wind, where I have had the privilege of being a project manager on that project. It's a great achievement that we have been sitting with a big group of experts and having people from England, France, Japan, US, 
chipping in with comments. And I think we actually have a very good document in place, which is now being adopted within Ørsted, but hopefully also across the globe for other developers to, to use. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, developing mm-hmm. the standard is definitely needed. And I think that as more wind farms go up offshore, there's going to have to be a way to keep them viable for as long as possible. I mean, I don't know if you could give us a rough estimate of how long a windmill is good for in the sea environment, 10 years? Well, it's often it's what you want to design it for. Okay. So you can see there's a number of things that determines a lifetime. Of course, all the components, the turbines, the blades, the towers and the foundations. If you look at the corrosion protection systems, you can design the anode to the number of years you'd like it to protect Mm. for. Same then in conjunction with coding and how, how long that would last for. But on top of that, you also need to know what loads you have on the structure. And here we have for offshore wind, we have dynamic loads. Yeah. We have wind and we have waves. So it's actually a lot of loads. And there you also need, that's also a design parameter that you need to take into account. And what has been up until now, the certified lifetime of these structures is maybe 25 years. But the industry, of course, going to bigger and larger. And so it's bigger turbines bigger assets, larger number of foundations, Mm -hmm. and with service life, which might be 35 or 40 or 50. So that provides also some challenges on how to do corrosion protection and document that you could do that and limit the amount of maintenance you need. Yeah, that's the other part here is what does it look like to maintain a wind turbine offshore? There are some courses you need to take if you want to go offshore. And in Europe, they're handled by GWO, so it's Global Wind Farm Organization. So you need to do a lot of working at high, sea rescue, all of these. And you need to have all that in place. So all technicians that works on a routine basis or regular basis daily on the offshore wind farm have to have these in place. So that's one thing. Besides knowing what you are going out to do, you also need to have all the safety aspects in place. But the wind farms are getting further and further offshore, many of them, which means that, for instance, Hornsea One, which is when it's in fully operation, it's the world's largest offshore wind farm. It takes six hours to go there. So it's a very long commute. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you need you have hotels out there so people can stay there and work. And of course, you have helicopters to transport people as well. So what does it take? Well, it's if you have not made a proper design, and there are, of course, in the industry, some learning that something was not expected. Then we talk about a, a lot of structures which are unmanned, and you need to access them individually, and there is a lot of them. So it has a huge impact if you have unforeseen maintenance for coding systems, replacing anodes. And the majority of things you have in the operational phase is related to corrosion. Interesting. Because it is actually quite interesting because, I mean, when the structure is built, it's just built. But you can maintain that it will not corrode. (laughs) And if it corrodes, you need to feed it into an updated service life calculation. And it could have a huge impact on how long an asset farm can actually operate safely. Yeah. yeah, that's very good. It's very important that the industry is aware of this. And I think with all the booming industry that we have, because if you see the curves, one thing is that we started in 1992, but it was very small and then it became a little bigger. 
But in these years from 2020 and to 2040, it's just exponentially growing. And I'm not sure there's a big risk, at least, that the industry makes errors and the quality is lacking because of this, because it's new, new developers, it's new fabricators, it's new installators, it's new operators. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's very important to have, for instance, standardization so people at least can see what is the recommendation in the industry. I'm also in standardization on coding, which is a much larger organization and with many people with many interests. And here we are sitting with different developers and we have suggested to make an ISO standard for coding systems of offshore wind. And that goes for both the foundation, towers, nacelle and blades. Mm -hmm. So we cover all in different parts. So we're trying to mature this and have proposed a new work item in the ISO committee, which I hope we will start. Yeah, I think that's wonderful because like you said, we are definitely going to be seeing an exponential growth of wind farms going up everywhere. And we want to make sure that they're viable assets for as long as possible, right? Yes, yes. It is. It's very good with green energy and renewable energy. But if they all suffer from errors or faults down the line, it's not so good anymore. Then the business case may not be as good, etc. And and risks and failures, uh, that would be not so good, of course. Yeah. But also because of this huge boom that we will be seeing or is seeing, you need to have new fabricators. They will just pop up everywhere to produce new cans, new foundations, new coding facilities. So I hope we managed to get an ISO standard out on coding. But, you know, you know Christine, the standardization works takes a lot of time oh, sure. because you need to agree with so many people. <laughs> <laughs> so that takes, uh, there will be a lot of discussion on what's the right approach. But I think the developers, the group, I'm chairing the Mirror Committee in Denmark on coding. And as I said, we are pioneers in Denmark on offshore wind. So Vestas is also who produces all the turbines together with Siemens Gamesa. And the Vattenfall is not a Danish company, but they are large in Denmark and Ørsted. So it's, we would be happy to share some of the experience that we've had so far, because we took, of course, a lot of learnings across down the line. Yeah. And hopefully we, the industry can benefit from this. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And it can also provide some guidance on how can we also make it more sustainable. If you look at coding systems, the coding systems that are used are epoxy coding systems to a large extent. It's not really what you would call sustainable, but this is the systems that we have, which has a good track record and a long service life of a coding system also makes it sustainable. So it's a balance, but how can we develop this area more? So making a standard is one thing, but also can we identify where we should move the industry to get more sustainable solutions also on that? Yeah, that's so good. And I think that Women Offshore is really speaking to the up and coming generation of thinkers and problem solvers. And so, you know, I'm challenging you, the listener out there mm -hmm. to think innovatively and to see the big picture of the industry and the direction it's going. And you have a very technical role, but what makes you excited to wake up every day and go to work? Well, basically, I like being around other people and I like making things work and develop things with the people that I'm with. I appreciate the different cultures that we have in offshore wind. People come from so many different places and I think this is very inspiring, all the diversity that we have. So I like for us to work together and I like to bring 
different competences to the table because I may know a lot of my area, but it has to fit into the structural picture as well. So things go hand in hand. And I think this is where we can develop that's bringing people together. So you need to have your competence areas, but you can bring it even further when you then bring it together. And that goes for biodiversity. It would go for structural. It would go for corrosion. That I appreciate a lot, but it's because there's a lot of people. It would not be as fun just sitting by myself (laughs) doing work. (laughs) I appreciate working with others. Yes, it's the people that make the job great. Yes, yes, it is. And the lunch (laughs) and the coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Spirit, tell us where people can go if they want to learn more about offshore wind or cathodic protection systems or just anything in general, where would you point them to? Yes. You can say, I said that there will be some standards that you can always get some learnings from. There's a lot of guidance in the new ISO 24656. Also on reasons why, and not only this is what you do, but also telling you why this is the case. So you can think yourself. So standards is one approach. Then you have, of course, you can attend conferences. IQPC is one of the organizers who has been over the years annually, of course, not during the COVID pandemic, but beside that yearly, they do events. Of course, this is locally in Europe. They always take place in Bremen in Germany, but it's always put with, uh, with developers and suppliers participating. So you have a big variety of people, university people, etc. So that's also a good place to learn what takes place. Then you can see there's a lot of R&D works. There's a group of developers who participate in what is called Carbon Trust, or we have Carbon Trust to administer R&D works, research and development works. So the different companies, we provide ideas to what is the next item that we should look into and mature and develop. And then it's put out in tender and hopefully comes back to the benefit of all the developers being there. And then you can say there would always be academics, universities looking into this. Because of Denmark being in the forefront, there's also a huge amount of foreign students taking their master thesis and PhD studies in Denmark because we have a very acknowledged wind faculty at the Danish Technical University. So there are a number of places Then you can start working within it (laughs) (laughs) because that's part of how you learn is to work with it and consider what you're doing and ask the right questions yourself. It's really nice to have you on our podcast, just educating all of us right now about a really important part of the industry that we don't talk about enough. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us. You're very welcome, Christine. Thanks for tuning in to the Women Offshore podcast. What did you think of the show? Leave a rating and review an Apple podcast. Additionally, if you want to propel Women Offshore forward, please visit womenoffshore.org or womenoffshore.shop. Make a donation or purchase some swag. Until next time, stay safe out there and I'll talk to you soon.